Let us read together from verses 3 all the way to verse 9. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 9 together. Shall we begin reading? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. May God bless the reading of his holy scriptures. Shall we turn to God in prayer? Let us pray. Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for seeing us through another week, keeping us safe, protecting us, and bringing into our midst those who have been traveling. We thank you for keeping them safe, and we also thank you for new friends in our midst. And Lord, we come into thy holy presence, acknowledging that we come before the holy God, the living God, the almighty creator. We come asking that you search our hearts. Lord, wherein we have sinned against you, we ask that you forgive us, even as we confess and seek to repent. We ask that you cover and cleanse us in the blood of Christ. O oh, Father, we desire that this night your Holy Spirit would teach us from your holy scriptures the decrees of God. Lord, this is a high and lofty topic, one that the mere men cannot understand. And Father, we ask that even as we come, we would have submissive minds, open hearts, Lord, to truly acknowledge that thou art the God, the very God. And Father, we ask that you remove all tiredness, every distraction. Help us to focus on your word. Lord, richly bless each group that is meeting tonight. And feed thy children. Glorify thyself. Exalt thy son. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this topic tonight, chapter 3, it's truly a very high and lofty area of the Christian faith, which... A lifetime of study will not enable us to fully understand this topic of God's eternal decree. All right, so what you have before you is the Westminster Confession of Faith from the BBK book, chapter 3. All right, so just look at your notes. We'll go through these eight points, God willing, tonight. And as usual, I have the question sheet to help you follow along the lesson. All right, so let's look at your notes which is page 249 okay now number one shall we read the westminster confession of faith chapter three point number one shall we read together carefully let's read god from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, 
nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of, or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So this is what the Westminster divines penned concerning the decrees of God. Now we have in our hands Holy Scriptures, the Bible, we just read at the opening of this meeting. And here in this particular chapter is the men gathering to try and put together the definition of God's decree. God's decree. What is God's decree? A decree is something that is passed, as in um, a law, an order, um, something that is given as a command for, some, for things to occur. All right? So in general, that is decree, a decree. But the question is, what does it mean, the decree of God? The Bible talks about God, the very holy God, the almighty creator, the ruler of this universe, the sovereign God. The Bible tells us, or rather God himself tells us, that he has passed decrees. So he has given commands for things to happen. Now, so how do we define the decree of God? Now, the king of a country, he gives decrees. The ruler of our countries would send out edicts, um, government rules, laws, decrees of how the country should be run and what should happen. But when it comes to the Almighty God, what does the decree of God mean? So here in point number one, in fact, I try to section it, point number one and two, encapsulates the definition of the decree of God. All right, and then the other subsequent um, numbers in these points would explain to us how the decrees are executed, especially regarding men and angels. So now, what is the decree of God? Let's go to point number one carefully. This is a very good definition. The Bible verses are there. So let's look at how they have defined the decree of God. Point number one. Now, it says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Right, we stop there. Now, God's decree is what he has ordained whatsoever coming to pass. Whatsoever happens in this world is decreed by God. All right, so if you just underline that, very simply, what is God's decree? He has ordained whatsoever things that comes to pass. Anything that happened from the beginning of time to the end of time, every single thing in every single person's life is under the decree of God. It is ordained by God. That's why they rightly define whatsoever, anything. It is not just what happens in church, what happens in the Christian life. Whatsoever means in politics, in the ordinary man's life, in the rich and famous life, in the government, in business, everything that is under the sun is under the decree of God. In other words, you can say that truly nothing happens by chance then. God already knows. That's why it says in here, look at this. It has its definition, God from all eternity. Now, it means that right from the beginning, from eternity to eternity, God has already ordained. We'll see later, it means one thing. It means that before something happens, before time even began, 
God already ordained that it will happen. Tonight that you're sitting here, it is something that God already knows and ordained that will occur before even time began. Whatsoever means before eternity began, everything, who you will marry, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you have children, how many children, who will be born into your family, who will be your husband, who will be your wife. Now all this, before time began, God has already decreed and He already knows. So this is the decree of God. And the question is, how does He ordain all these things? Now, we have just read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, right? So this definition, you see the subsupers, or rather the, the note there, that is point number one. It refers us to chapter 1, verse 11, right? Chapter 1, verse 11. Now, can you please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11? How do they come out with this definition? How do they come out with this definition? They, they took it from the Bible. Always, every definition the Westminster Divines put together is always from the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 11. Shall we read chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 together? In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, here God himself reveals to us that he works all things, every single thing in your life, in this universe, in this world. Who will be the president next year? Who will be the prime minister in this country next year? Who, which country will be superpower? Everything. Who, what will happen in your life? God says he works all things. All things how? How does he work it out? You look at your notes by the most wise and counsel, wise and holy counsel of his own will. That's why it's taken from the Bible, the counsel of his own will. What does the counsel of his own will freely, unchangeably means? Now, first of all, it is God's will. Means it is God's choice. It is not something that depends on men or is up to men to give input to God. So God says that it is his own counsel. Counsel means plan, advice. So God takes no advice from anyone. God decides. But you say, God decides? Would it be wise or not? That's why the divines rightly point out that it is his most, by his most wise and holy counsel. His plans that he has planned for the universe, for everything that occurs, is according to his wise and holy counsel. He, this refers, the wisdom refers to God's omniscience. God is wise. He is, as those of you have memorized, what is God? God is in uh, spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being, wisdom. Wisdom. Now, this wisdom of God is infinite. God is the omniscient God. You cannot imagine what infinite wisdom means. But this is God. God is infinite. You cannot even begin to imagine the wisdom of God. We are so finite. It's like an ant trying to figure out the human mind. That is us trying to figure out the all-wise God. So he's omniscience. He's the all-knowing God. 
So when God decreed all things before time even began, and we always say time began, time had a beginning. Time did not exist until God created the world. But even before that, before God created the world, which He included time, He already, already in His infinite wisdom ordained everything in this world. Your personal life, to global events, to church events, everything. Now, most wise, omniscient, and most holy. This must bring a lot of comfort to us. Now, if I tell you, I have decided everything for your life, and I'm going to make it happen, it's a very sad thing, because I'm not all wise. I'm human. I make mistakes. I'll make wrong decisions for you. I do not know the future. But because this is God, He is the all-wise God, before anything happens, He already knows what will happen. Do you want such a person to ordain everything in your life? He's all-wise and He's all-loving. And it says His counsel, His plans are holy. Means it is always pure. It is without sin. It is never evil. It is always very good. It is the best. Holy. No evil intentions. No, un no injustice at all. So when, when we read, God says, Worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, and knowing who this God is, as believers, we must take the greatest comfort and assurance. Because this, you are in the safest and wisest hand possible. You can trust Him. That is why when we understand the decrees of God, and it is designed by His most wise and holy will, we pray with comfort. Right? You pray, God, please let this happen in my life. And then it doesn't happen. Then you say, God, why, why would you not let it happen? This is something that I really think is very good for me or for my family. Why don't you let it happen? Why don't you design it into my life? Because God is the all-wise God. He knows what is best for you and I. I just give a simple illustration. Um, those of you who have children, your little ones, they love to play in the playground. And they love to dash across the road. They love to climb up high um, structures and try to jump down. And, but you are far wiser than your child, right? I hope. <laughs> you know that that is a very dangerous thing to do. If they're going to climb up there and jump down, probably break their leg or you know, break their skull. You know that if the kid rushes across Canning Highway across the road, he is very likely going to be knocked down by the car. You as a father, as a mother, knows that that is dangerous and you stop the child. But your child does not understand. Your child gets very angry. Why does daddy and mommy don't let me run? You keep holding her back, holding him back. They don't understand. But, so this is what the decree of God is. We may sit here and think, this is not very good. You mean God has ordained all things? Well, if God is a wicked, unholy, and silly God, then yes, it is not good. But this is the living God, the creator of the universe that we are talking about. He created things that you and I cannot even begin to understand. The greatest scientists cannot explain what holds the nucleus together. They cannot. They just know that it is held together. What happens in there? No one can understand. There are things under the sea, there are things in the sky that we haven't even begun to see or understand. There are things in science that scientists can only see and explain that it exists, but they cannot understand why it is so. 
This is the God we are talking about. If you can begin to understand fully how your body functions, there are sicknesses that, hum- that doctors, the cleverest doctor, cannot heal. They cannot understand. Can any, can any, any one of you explain why you die? Your heart is pumping. Your heart is pumping because there's an electrical pulse. Well, the doctors can tell you there's an electrical pulse, but they can't tell you where that pulse comes from. Right, Colin? Fiona? <laughs> you just know it pumps, but you can't explain why it's pumping. When it dies, you keep pumping volts and volts of electricity into it. Why can't you simulate that? You will still die. So there are things that we cannot even begin to understand, and this is the God that decrees all things. And He's the holy God. Nothing evil, nothing wicked. We may not understand fully because we are a child. We are so infinite. We are so finite. So here is the decree. Now God says it is freely. Means it is His sovereign will. The decree of God is always ties to is always tied to God's freedom. Means His sovereignty. He answers to no man. He decides. Sovereignty means over all. God's sovereignty is not only over Christians. Sometimes we think it's only Christians. Or God is sovereign in the Christian world, in the church. Or but outside the political world, the business world, the universe, God is not in control. God is not sovereign means someone who is overall, right? Someone say, oh, he's the sovereign of the nation, means he's the overall in charge. So God's sovereignty is it encompasses everything. And it is free. He asks no one. Freely, freely. So that talks about his sovereignty. Now, when you understand when God ordains all things and it is sovereignly ordained, again, it is very important for the Christian to understand that. You know what it means? When you say God is sovereign and God has sovereignly ordained all things, then it means that when you go to work, where you go to work, unless you choose to sin, We'll talk about that afterwards. It's already ordained by God. And if you have a bad, and, um, uh, a bad manager, a bad boss, you must know that God has ordained that. And in His wisdom, He has ordained that. You say, how can a bad boss be good for me? How can a bad boss be good for you? Do you believe that God is all wise, that a best bad boss is good for you? Or a good boss is good for someone else? Why someone else have a good boss? I have a bad boss. But God says, I'm the all-wise God. I put you there. It's good for you. I've known of people who work better when they have bad bosses. <laughs> they are more diligent. They are more... Because they see the bad example. Then they say, I don't want to be like that. Then they work very well as Christians. Some people have a good boss. It's bad for them. Because they become lazy, they take advantage, then become a very bad worker. It's not good for the person. We do not know, but God, God says, I have ordained. It is good for you. It is good for you. For the Christian, knowing that God is sovereign also means this. Sometimes you think, my boss is an unbeliever. Hmm. I think he's outside God's control. God can't control him. So I'll... There's nothing I can do. I won't pray. But God is sovereign means God is also in control of unbelievers. God is also in control with, of politics. You say, oh, oh no, this, this, president, this person became president. Oh, it's the end of the world. You think God has lost. 
God did not manage to control. No, God is sovereign means He is in control of absolutely every single event that occurred every minute or every second, nanosecond in this universe since the beginning of time until the end of time. Okay? So understand the sovereign decrees of God. Nothing escapes it. Nothing escapes it. Everything is included. And that must give you much assurance. Okay, so now that is what it is. That first definition um, worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So is it bad to read this? In the past, when you read this, do you get angry? God, you mean you decided everything? But now when you understand who God is, you will say, Yay, God, I'm so glad it is you who have decided everything. That is good for me. That is good for this world. Now, the next thing, all right? So that is the first part. Now it says, now, the next part it says, well, what is the decree of God? Number one is pretty much the whole first statement, okay? It's pretty much that. Or oh, some of you who are um, familiar with, with um, the Shorter Catechism, you will also know that it is, it is very familiar the decree of God, I'll just read to you. What are the decrees of God? God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of God, of the counsel of His will, whereby from all eternity He hath for His own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. Okay? So that is a summary of this. Now, but I forget to mention one word. Unchangeably ordained. Unchangeably ordained. It means this. Whatever God has decreed will not change. It will not change. No catastrophe in this world can ever change it. So if God has ordained something in your life, it will not change. Now that is a very great assurance too. If God has ordained that you will die next year, you will die next year. If God ordained that you will die 10 years, 20, 40, 50, 70 years later, it will not change. All right? Unless in his decree, he has decreed that it will extend or shorten. But it will not change. Nothing will change. You cannot fight it. It will happen. It will happen. Then it goes to the next question. Now, does it mean that it is I ask the second question, point number two, question two. Does it mean men are just puppets controlled by God in a fatalistic fate? Are we puppets? Not so. Now read on. Page 49. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin. That is the first thing. God is not the author of sin. So you say, well, God is holy, God is wise. Then God ordained all things. Then how come there are rapists in this world? How come there are murderers in this world? How come there are people who um, are evil, are wicked? How come there are all these terrible things that people do to others? If God has ordained all things, then God is the author of those sinful things. Well, the Bible is very clear. It is God's holy counsel. God is not and never the author of sin. Okay, can you please turn your Bibles um, to this particular verse? Point number two, James 1.13. James 1.13. Um, maybe um, Eugene, you can help um, anyone who needs to turn the Bible. It's not familiar. 
with the Bible at this point. James 1.13. Now, the Word of God is very clear about what God does. James 1.13. Now, can we read this together? Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Alright, so now the Bible is very clear. God does not cause men to commit sin. God does not tempt men to sin. So you see, then how come these things happen? How come sinful things happen? Sinful things happen not because God ordained them. Sinful things happen because why? Actually, why? Why? What do you think? Um, anyone want to try? Maybe. Uh, well, why do sinful things happen in this world then? Say again? Because of the fall of man, correct. Because Adam and Eve, because of the fall of man, man chose to sin, and then from there on, man will always commit sin. When, man, when there is sin, it is man who sin. That's why you look at James chapter 1, now verse 14. Right? It says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lusts have conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So God ordained all things. And where there are evil that happen, it is men who commit those sins. God is not the author of sin. Next, it says this. So God is not the author of sin. That is something that must be very clear in our minds. God is the holy God. He does not cause men to sin. Men choose to sin. That's why there is sin in this world. Actually, that's what someone asked me the other day. He said, my friend just asked me at work, how can I explain this to him? He said, I don't like Christianity. Um, you say that your God allowed all things. Then, um, if your God is so powerful, why don't he make all sicknesses go away in this world? Why don't he make... All men never commit any evil. Why don't he make this no, no evil in this world at all? Why does these things happen? Well, the answer is very simple. The Bible tells us very clearly. The reason why men fall sick, the reason why we will die, why is it so? Because of the fall, because of sin. Sin is the reason why there is sickness, sickness enters this world. Sin is the reason why men will die. If, there were no, if men did not commit sin and turn against God, then there is no such thing as death. There is no such thing as sicknesses. Now, I'm not saying that every time you fall sick is because of sin. All right? But the fact that your human body does fall sick is because by birth we are sinners. The fact that we, all men are sinners, God said all men are sinners, is proven by the fact that all men dies. All right? Sin is the cause of sickness and death. It came into the world because of sin. Now, the next thing. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor, the, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. What does this statement mean? This statement means that God, while God ordains all things, He does not violate the will of the creature. We are not puppets. In other words, although God ordained all things, yet it is man's will, or rather man's will is still intact. Okay, what does it 
mean? And not is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. It means from what God ordained to occur, all right, God ordained something to occur, from this point to here it occurring, in between, contingency of second causes means all the things that happen in between. Okay, all the things that happen in between. Now, all these things, the liberty of all these things, man choices from here to here, is not something that God makes man into a puppet, although he ordained all things. Is it true? Can you think of an example like that? That God ordained something to occur, but yet the, it is the will of man, the will of man was not taken away. It still occurred, but the will of man was involved. Can you think of any? Turn to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Verse, uh, I'm so sorry. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. These are the points in there, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Okay, let's read Acts chapter 2, verse 23 together. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands and have crucified and slain. Who is this talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? Now, the Bible is very clear. Him, which is Christ, Christ being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now, the Bible tells us very clear that Jesus Christ was delivered to the Jews, he was to the Romans, and he was crucified. He was delivered to crucifixion. Who was it who, was it who determined that? The Bible tells us. It was delivered by the determinate, means God determined it, counsel, his plan, and foreknowledge of God. Means God before time determined that Jesus Christ will be crucified. You know why, right? If Jesus Christ was not crucified, then our sins are not paid for. So God ordained before time. Do you realize what that means? That before God created Adam and Eve, God knew that Adam and Eve will fall. Remember? Because now God ordained that Christ would come to be crucified. Why would he ordain that? Because he knew that men would fall and would need a saviour. But God permitted it. Okay, that is his counsel. That is why he chose. We, we cannot explain. But so God says that I will send Jesus Christ. Now, Remember we said, are men puppets? Are men puppets? No. The Bible tells us here that by wicked hands ye have taken and by wicked hands crucified and slain him. You turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Okay. Now, Let's read 27 and 28 together. For of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together 
for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. Now, you notice this. These men, they were the one who crucified Christ. But God says very clearly that it is their, their own determination, their own acts that crucified Christ. God is not the one who say, all right, I'll make you crucify Christ. These were wicked men. They wanted Christ to die. They hated the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one who ordained Christ will come and die, but that men chose to do what they did to Christ was the will of men. Do you understand what is happening here? None of us are puppets. We cannot say, oh God, you made me sin. God, you made me murder. God, you make... No. God says it's very clear. I determine something. You are the one who would act according to your own wicked will. That is what it is. That is why there are sins in this world. But there is something that we also must realize. Does it mean that what God ordained and then what comes to pass depends on men? Does it mean that? It doesn't depend on men. They say, what if, what if Pontius Pilate did not do it? What if Judas did not betray Christ? What if? The many what ifs. Now, God's decree, we say, is unchangeable, right? It means it will surely happen without fail. When God says Christ will die, He will come and die for our sins. The in-between, what will happen, you turn with me to Esther, the book of Esther. Now, Mordecai had his theology very accurate. Okay, the book of Esther, after Nehemiah, the book of Esther, turn to chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. Now here Mordecai tells Esther, he says this, For if thou, if you, Esther, altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now, Mordecai told Esther, Esther, you are placed in the palace. The king wants to, or rather Haman, wants to wipe out the Jews. And he says, you have to go and speak with the king. And then he tells Esther this, Now, Esther, if you don't go speak to the king, because Esther told him, I cannot just appear before the king. I just can't turn up. The Persian kings don't work like that. Unless you're invited, if I just turn up like that, I get killed. So he said, now, if you don't go and see the king, then enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Mordecai understood his theology. Mordecai says, well, what God has ordained, as far as Mordecai is concerned, the Jews will be delivered because he's God's covenantal people. They will never be um, eradicated. You know, Hitler tried to eradicate them. Actually, when you know what Hitler tried to do, it's almost the same as the book of Esther. It's amazing how he repeats. Now, 
Haman, uh, Mordecai already knew the Jews will not perish. God's decree. But he said, Esther, if you don't act, deliverance will still come from somewhere. God's eternal decrees will not change. But you, by your own will, can choose not to act. But it will come from somewhere else. So, please remember that God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. I say that again. God is sovereign, God has ordained, but the, res- the man's responsibility exists. But yet, even if men do not fulfill their responsibility, no one thing, God's eternal counsel will still be accomplished. Alright? So, that is what this statement number one is explaining. Okay? So, even if we don't do anything, God's counsel will come to pass. But you miss out. You miss out. Or if you try, like Haman, he tried to do everything possible. And he was the second most powerful human being on earth at that time. And he got the most powerful human being, the king of Persia, Middle Persian um, kingdom on earth to support him. They can try. In between their will, they can try. But they cannot thwart God's plan to deliver the Jews. Now, when you understand God's decree, you must... I repeat again, trust Him and not worry and not fret and not have this sense of regret until you understand that this is God. You will start to wonder, why is my life like that? Some people wonder, why they don't get married? Some people wonder, why don't I have children? Some people wonder, why am I not smarter? Why am I not um, a degree holder? Why am I not... um, Why don't I have the talent to be a musician? Why am I, why am I, why am I, why am I? Then they feel very, very sad. But once you understand the decree of God, you know that this is God, the all-wise, the most holy God, have decreed something for you. And in between anything that happens, it may look very terrible, it may look very painful, but He will bring His purposes to pass in your life. And it is always the best purposes. You know what's the difference between um, God's decree and fate? What's the difference between, which we'll study afterwards, predestination and fate? Do you know the difference? predestination and fate. Okay? We'll, we'll discuss that afterwards. If I forget, Rowena, remind me. Alright? What's the difference between predestination and fate? Because we're going to do predestination. Now, let's move on to point number two. So that's point number one. The summary of point number one is basically this. This is the high, holy, or wise God. He's ordained all things. It will never be thwarted. But yet, at the same time, no matter what men do or don't do, their will can never interfere with God's God plan. But yet you have your own will. Okay? In other words, this is that amazing sovereignty of God, you know, that no matter what you do or don't do, what He ordained will come to pass perfectly. Alright? Later, um, if you have time, when you do the book of Esther, 
it is really amazing how God brings His plan to come to occur. It's so amazing, but yet through everyday events. That is your God. So that is point number one. Okay, so we are not puppets, but at the same time, we cannot thwart God's plan. Number two, although God knows, let's read number two together. Although God knows whatsoever may come, or may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything, because he foresaw it as a future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. What is this saying? It's saying this. Now we say God has ordained all things to happen, right? The question is, did God ordain these things to happen because He knew what you were going to do? So, although God knows what will ever come to pass, yet He has not decreed anything because He foresaw the future. In other words, God does not work like that. God's, God's decree does not work like that. God, see, look, God can see the future. He looks at the future and says, Oh, I know Joseph is going to do this. Pei is going to do that. Um, Abigail is going to do this. Alright, since they're going to do all these things, let me decide what's the best outcome, what should I do? Ah, let me plan and let this happen. It doesn't work like that, you know? You know what I'm saying, right? We already said the point number one. What he decree is, is independent, is sovereign, he's free. Independent of man's will. So, point number two simply clarifies it further. Because some people think that or rather, there is a new theology. I ask you there. Um, question number three, open theism. There is a new theology being taught in many Bible colleges that says this. God does not know the future absolutely. Okay? The future is still to be written. That's why it's called open. Open theism. Theism is God. Alright? The future, as far as God is concerned, is still open. If you choose to do this, then God will forecast and God will predict that the future will be like that. Understand that? There's open theism. It's, it's a doctrine that basically says God is not omni, what? Seeing. means God doesn't know everything about the future. Point number one tells us God knows everything about the future. You know when God knows everything about the future, it's very good, right? Can you trust... Okay, maybe I put it like that. You're going to take FEBC exam. Hmm? You're going to take an, uh, an exam. Or you're going to go for a job interview. And then the job interviewer or the examiner have all the questions. He knows all the questions. Okay? And then, isn't it very good if he, tells, if he would tell you, or rather, you know that he's going to tell you everything that he's going to ask? It's good, right? This is God. God knows every single thing that's going to happen. So isn't it very good to trust in this God? Because everything that He allows or does not allow is the best. If I know that a car is going to speed by afterwards, so I tell you, don't walk out. Because if you walk out, you'll be knocked down. Isn't that a good thing? Because I know the future. Then I say, wow, this is good to have such a person around. <laughs> this, is, this is what it means by God knowing the future but once god does not know the future it is not much use to have such a god as your god can you trust him no the opposite is true you have become god because what you do he has to figure out 
what to forecast next. That open theism has turned God's sovereignty, God's omniscience upside down. God is dependent on you now. All right, so that is not the case at all from Holy Scriptures. The Bible tells us that He has decreed all things. He knows all things. Okay, now the question is, how does God, question number three, question number three, how does God decree all things? God does not decree anything depending on you or world politics or business happenings. Although He sees the future, He does not decree anything based on that. Okay? Now, does God know the future? Yes. The case in 1 Samuel, all right, can you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11, uh, chapter 23, 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. Verse 11. Alright, so now, shall we um, read, read verse 11 and 12 together? First Samuel chapter 23, verse 11 and 12 together. Will the man of Kela deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then said David, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver thee up. You see, God knows the future. God sees the future. David knows that. That's why David asked God, God, will these country people come and betray me? Will Saul come and attack me? God said, Yes, he's coming. God knows the future. Okay, that's for sure. But he does not plan the future based on what these people would do. Okay? Now, um, how, because very simply, turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. How do we know God is not planning based on that? Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Oh, sorry, Romans chapter 9. Let's look at verse 16 instead. Romans chapter 9, verse 16. Okay, let's read together Romans 9, 16. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In other words, it says, now whatever God does, it does not depend on your will. I will to have this. I will to do this. I will run. I will do this. I will do that. But God says, no, it is not dependent on your will at all. It is purely dependent on me. I choose to do things mercifully, what I choose to do. All right? So remember that. So God is very clear about his decrees. Don't have any other concept of God. You must have the highest concept of God. All right? So I end point number one and two. The whole point about point number one and two is to set your mind, my mind, in a state of our thoughts towards God as the sovereign God who ordained all things according to his own will, nothing to do with men, and everything that he has ordained will come to pass without exception in every single aspect of your life and the life in this universe has already been ordained by him. Okay? 
So it's to put you in a mind, a state of mind of having the highest thought of such a God. Can you accept such a God? The Bible tells us that the natural man would not. I would not be under control of such a God. But it does not matter. God will always be in control. No matter how we resist Him, no matter what we think of Him, it does not change one thing. He's the monarch of the universe. But He's not a wicked, uncaring, um, lazy, um, unwise monarch. He is the wise and holy God. Okay? So now, that is point number one and two. So that is God's eternal decrees. That is how He decreed, how He decrees things. Now, point three to seven is going to talk about God's decree concerning you, concerning men, especially concerning salvation and also of angels. <laughs> so tonight we're going to talk a bit about angels. Now, point number three. Let me help you through this first. Huh? Can you look at your question sheet? Can you look at your question sheet? Look at question number four. All right. Now, I split question number four from A to G. You see that? Okay, now, I want you to have this understanding first. Point three to seven, it's going to be about election. Okay? Predestination of election, of salvation. Point number three is explaining what predestination is. Okay? Point number four is B, is explaining how you are elected. Point number five is talking about when did God elect you? When did God predestinate? Why did God predestinate you? Understand? Then point number six is E. Now, how does God make this election effective for the believer? Then point number seven talks about who are the elect. Point number seven talks about double predestination. I want to explain what that is. Okay, understand? So points three to seven talks about how men, uh, what election is, how many are elected, when did God elect, why did God elect, how, it is, how does election occur, or how does it get effected rather, and who are the elect. Okay? So... When you look at chapter 3, it's, it's um, designed to explain these things to you. Understand that? I hope you do. Otherwise, it will um, be just one a lot of details, that's all. What I try to do in every Westminster Confession is give you an overview. Point 1 and 2 is purely about this sovereign God. Right? Point 3 to 7 is about your election. Understand that? And then point 8 is then therefore how we should view all this. Okay? So this is what chapter 3 is about. Now, then let's go through quickly point number three. Now, let's read together. By the decree, point number three, let's read together. By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated into everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. Now, this statement explains to us predestination. What is predestination? Okay, now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. 
What is predestination? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, can we read together please? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. Having predestinated us according to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is predestination. Predestination is God making us his children. He has predestined that you will be his child through Christ Jesus. Alright, so predestination here is defined as God choosing before time to save you. Predestined. God has ordained. God has decreed. God has decreed. Predestined. Okay, now. So, here God tells us that God has predestined us, some men, and some angels. Now, angels, point number six. Okay. Um, can we turn to Matthew 5? Matthew, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. So, not only men, but they are angels. First Timothy chapter 5 verse 21. Now shall we read First Timothy 5:21 together? I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. So now here Paul charges Timothy, I charge you before God, before Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Means in the witness of angels. And for the angels, he refers to them as elect angels. Means even angels are elected. Now, what is this about? Predestination is, look at your point number three now. Predestination is God ordaining certain men and certain angels to have everlasting life. What does that mean? It means who will live, who will go to heaven, who will, um, or which angels will remain in heaven when Satan fell, is elected by God. God predestined. Predestined. When Satan fell, all right, when Satan fell, the Bible tells us that he took with him a group of angels and this group of angels went along with him okay and we are told that when he fell he took one-third of the angels in heaven with him one-third of the angels from heaven with him so that is what the Bible tells us how many angels are there do you know we don't know. But God does give us a percentage of angels that were taken. Now, did these angels fall randomly? No, it is also God's election. God has already decided which angels are elect. Just like when God allowed men to be born into this world, He has predestinated who will be safe. Now, it's something that 
I know maybe for um, friends who are here, you find it mm, it's very difficult to understand. There are some things that we do not understand. The decrees of God is infinitely wise. But there are things in the Bible that God tells us and states that that is so. Then you say, oh, what happened if I were not an elect and I'm not predestined to be saved? Well, the Bible tells us very simply, God's offer of salvation is always genuine. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you think that, if you worry, if you ever worry, oh no, what happened if I'm not an elect? What happened if I'm not predestined among this? As long as you think about that, you can quite surely say, know that you are not, not an elect. The non-elects will always be like that. The non-elects will hate God. The non-elects will reject God. The non-elect will always refuse and they're not even interested in God. They will say he don't exist or if he exists, I hate him. I don't want him. That is the behavior of the natural sinner. But if there's any in, anything in you that says, but I want to be saved, you just respond. You know, C.H. Spurgeon said this, before I was saved, it is me wanting to believe in God. After I was saved, I turn back and look at the gate and I see the words, elect before the foundation of the world. You know what he means, right? Before you are saved, you wonder and you want to be saved and you ask God to save you. What if I'm not in elect? Then you get saved and then you turn around and say, oh, actually God is the one who saved me. I would have rejected him. So as long as you're someone who wants to believe in this God, who wants to be saved, you can safely know that you're not among those that are God-haters. That's as much as I can tell you. And therefore, the offer is, is there. Come and trust in Him. It's a genuine offer. Alright, this is as much as I want to say here. I'll maybe talk about it a bit more afterwards. But God did choose. God did predestinate. It is in the Bible. We read it for, with our own eyes. God predestinated us. Okay? God predestinated us. Alright, even angels. Now, the question is also... Actually, it's the next one. Oh, good. It's the next one. Now, point number four. Shall we read together? Now, so we understand what is predestination. Is God choosing pre and determining who will be saved? Men and angels. Okay? That's predestination. Now, point number four. The question is, how many? Let's read point four together. These angels and men... Thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be increased or diminished. Alright, so the Bible simply tells us that God has ordained how many? We do not know. There are millions, millions, billions, billions. We do not know. But there are many, many, many. Okay, and as far as God is concerned, um, he has chosen, he has decided, and it's a fixed number. Means, over time, God did not say, oh, looks like not enough people in heaven. I think I need to increase the number. Or, oops, I calculated wrongly. Too many. It's getting full. I need to cut down. 
All right? No, it is fixed already before time. It does not change. Why I also want to particularly emphasize this is because um, at one time, someone wrote, and uh, after we had the topic on election, the covenantalism, and someone, I think, misunderstood, and the person was very happy, well, it's good, said, I'm so happy that God is still electing people today. <laughs> right? No, the election has occurred. The numbers are fixed. All right, so how many is fixed? We do not know how many, but it's fixed. All right, um, and then point number five. Okay, point number... Now, how many is fixed? Now, point number five. Now, when did God elect? Did God decide on you yesterday? Did God... Or has God not decided on you yet? When did God elect? Point number five. Shall we read point number five together? Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory. All right, let's stop there first. So God tells us that before time began, he already chose you. Understand that? Now, how do we know that? Point number nine. Okay, will you turn to point number nine with me? Ephesians 1, verse Oh, sorry, 2 Timothy 1 9. 2 Timothy 1 um, Okay, my mistake. I'm sorry. Turn to Ephesians 1 4. I think that is a better verse to use. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Now, when did God elect? When did God elect? Ephesians 1 4. Let's read Ephesians 1 4 together according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love all right so here the bible tells us that election occur before you even existed because before even time existed god already elected so you're called um rowena ching <laughs> all right before time even begin before god even laid the foundation of this world before he spoke the world into existence the foundation of the world god already said rowena cheng you are predestinated you'll be an elect you'll be saved that is what happened so for the believer you must understand that 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 is god's thought towards you okay so i know some thoughts are going through your mind we'll come to those thoughts soon so the when that is when so how, how, how many is fixed? When? Before the foundation of the world. Now, now why? I ask you why. Why did God elect? All right, why did God elect? You look at your page 249 again. Why did God elect? Now, it simply says this. The secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. It is purely God's good pleasure. Purely God's will nothing to do with you and he says without foresight of faith or good works right without foresight of faith and good works it means this when god decided on jason when god decided to save you 
God did not look in a time tunnel and say, let me look at Jason's life. Ah, Jason, you remember we read God knows the future, right? He could tell whether Saul would come or not. Oh, Jason will be a good boy. And Jason is, was going to do a lot of good deeds. All right, I decide to choose Jason. That is not how it works. Because the Bible tells us very clearly. Shall we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2? 2 Timothy chapter 2. Okay. Verse 9. This is... Second Timothy, let me check my verse. Okay, Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine. Shall we read Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine together? Reading, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So can you understand that? It's as clear as broad daylight. God did not look through the, the time tunnel and say, oh, good boy, I save you. Bad boy, I'm sending you to hell. Because he said, not according to our works at all. Um, in fact, let me read to you Romans chapter 9, verse 11. God says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. In fact, please turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 11. It's such a clear explanation of why God chose you. Romans 9, 11. Shall we read Romans 9, 11 together, please? For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of Him that calleth. So the Bible is very, very clear. It has nothing to do with whether you are going to do good works. It is purely God's free will. That's why there was someone who asked me a few years back. He says, you know, I cannot understand why... Wicked people that your Christian God would allow wicked people to go to heaven. I say, what do you mean? Well, some people, they commit murder. And then, at the last minute, they say, oh, I know I'm a terrible sinner. Now I found this God. I know that I'm going to hell. And I thank you that this God is willing to save me. And then I believe in Him. I receive Jesus as my Savior. Then say, someone who does that, then he'll go to heaven. Say, I cannot accept such a God. What they do not understand, and I explain, is why does gangsters go to heaven? And then sometimes you look, what is such a good man? But they reject Christ. They won't go. They, they, they refuse to believe in God. Because God already said, he did not look and say, you're a gangster, you're a murderer, you're a rapist, I'm not going to save you. God simply says, so and so, I'm going to save you. That's it. God didn't look, oh, good person, bad person, not at all. Because even before you were born, before you did anything, I already chose you. 
Alright, so that is election. This is what God says. Simple as that. Then I asked the person. I said, you cannot accept that. But let me ask you one thing. If, I say, do you love your brother a lot? Because I know she loves her brother a lot, so I love my brother tremendously. I say, if your bad brother turns bad one day, he becomes, he joins a bad group, became a gangster, and he killed people. He took drugs, and he did terrible things. And then one day he wakes up, and he realized that he cannot continue like that. But he's already at death penalty. Then he turns to this Christian God and he tells him, I realize now what wickedness I've done and I need to be forgiven. I thank you that you sent your son because I can't pay for my sin, I'm going to hell. But I thank you that you love me enough that you sent your son to die for my sins. Please forgive me. I'm a beggar coming to you. I have nothing to offer you, God. I'm a beggar just pleading for mercy. That's all. Would you save me? And then this God says, yes, I will save you. How would you feel? He said, I'll be very thankful. So I say, see, is God a wicked God? No, God is a God that loves even the worst sinners. He did not choose to save because you are a sinner or because you're a good person. After all, all are sinners, right? Every single person has committed sin. So here is God, and he should actually tell the believer this. If you are a Christian, don't think that because you were good, therefore God chose you. I'm actually quite good, you know. Oh, you look at my classmates, you look at my workmates. They're terrible people. They don't deserve Christ to save them. Not, not at all. We are no different. Alright, so God's, God's choice, the why. The why is simply, He chose. That's all. He chose. He chose you. That's all. So that is the, the when and the why. Now the next one, point number six. Okay, point number six, quickly. Point number six. Shall we read? Uh, let me see. Did I finish point? Okay. Um, can I just return to point number five, which we'll visit again. Point number five. Now at the end, at the end, there's a statement that says, "And all to the praise of His glorious grace." All to the praise of His glorious grace. Okay, so now, all to the praise of His glorious grace means whatever God does is for His own glory. It is not for you. It is to the praise of His glory. Yes, men will praise Him. This is a God of love. Right? This is a God who loves us so much that He personally comes to die for our sins. He personally comes to save us. So to the praise of His glory. But I know at this point, you might ask, and you might wonder, well, if God has chosen, if God has elected, then God has foreordained, then it's not very fair, is it? It's not fair. I question this God. Now, the Bible tells us that there were a group of people that had the same question. Right? There's the same question. You turn to Romans chapter 9.
Romans chapter 9. Now, let me read to you verse 15. Verse 15, Romans chapter 9, verse 15. Now God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Means God says, I am the one, I, I decide who. Then verse 16, so it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It has nothing to do with what you will do. God simply show you mercy. Verse 17, um, sorry, now, verse 18, therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will hardeneth. Thou will say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? So what is happening here in verse 18 and 19? Now verse 18 is saying, God says, I will have mercy on whoever I have mercy. In other words, it means this. My friend, if you choose to believe in God, it is not because you chose, but it is because God is merciful, He work in your heart, and you will choose Him. But God says, I will harden whomsoever I will harden. And then verse 19, the person says, Oh, then who can find fault with Him? Not, it's not fair. It's not fair. You find fault with me, God. You, you harden my heart. What is this verse? Because many Christians are very puzzled by this. Does God harden someone's heart? Does God election work this way? God said, okay, I will come and save this group. And this group, I will purposely make them. I repeat the word. Huh? God said, I will make young believe in me. Okay. When it comes to, someone not here, uh, um, Raymond. Okay, I don't think we have any Raymond in our church. Young, right. I will make young believe in me. But when I look at Raymond, I will go to Raymond. I hope none of our friends are not Raymond, right? No, no Raymond? Okay. All right. I will go to Raymond and I, God, will go into Raymond's heart and harden his heart so that he will not believe me. Is that how God's election works? No. All right? When God says, I will harden whom I will harden, it means this. Now, first of all, we have to understand God's election is he chose to work in some to believe in him. The rest, he bypassed. We will cover that afterwards. What does it mean? It means this. By default, the entire human race will never believe in God. Because the Bible tells us, none, none is righteous. No one do, will do anything righteous. None will choose Him. The Bible tells us that if God did not intervene, not a single human being will choose God. So I repeat, uh, by default, we all reject God. Election is this. God then says, by default, all are going to hell because they are all fallen, they will never choose me. I will intervene and make some believe me. The rest, God didn't do anything to their hearts. By default, as sinners, they, their heart is hardened against God. Do you understand that? I say again, by default, men's heart are already hardened against God. We will not choose God. God's election is He come in, He work in a group of people that are called the elect. The rest, He, leave, he left them alone. God does not go in and purposely make someone not believe Him. Understand that? Now, so what does this verse mean? I will harden whom I will harden. He said, no, 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 no. God says I will harden someone. Who wants to try? Because this is something that we must understand very clearly. 
Will we know when to try? Allowing them to continue not believing. That's correct. Allowing them. Can you think of an example? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh how? In Pharaoh's case. Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Now, when God says, I will harden their hearts, it means this. I've already explained in the Bible, God already said, no one will choose him. No single human being will choose him. Alright? In other words, all are hardened already. When God said, I will harden his heart, Pharaoh's heart, what it means is this. Now, God has sent many miracles, right? Many, many miracles. Amazing miracles. Miracles that any normal human being see will say, oh, I believe in this God. Alright? When God said, I harden his heart, how many miracles did God send? Many, alright. I think it's ten. I can't remember myself. But God sent many miracles. Each miracle that God performed, Pharaoh's heart got more hardened. Do you understand what's happening? Now, every time God does something and you reject Him, your heart is getting harder. In other words, God is saying, the more I do, the more He's hardened. That is what God means when God says, I harden his heart. means God says, I'm doing things, but please know, the more I do, it's getting worse. This guy is getting worse and worse and worse. He's getting more and more hardened towards me. Amazing miracles, but yet he would not believe. Understand that? So, Rowena is correct. The statement is basically, God hardening man means, God leave them to their own hardness, and they will become more and more hardened. Okay? So that is what it means. So, so now the question is this. They say, well, God, if you don't work in me, then you're not fair. Well, the Bible simply tells us, look at Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Nay, but O men, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me so? Hath not the potter power over the clay and the same lump to make one vessel unto honour, another to dishonour? Now this is a very humbling thing. God simply says this, Who are you, men? We are just men. We are finite. We cannot understand. Can you question the, the infinite God? The answer is simply that. And then he says further, verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction? Verse 23, let's read together. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which hath afore prepared unto glory. You know what this is saying? It's something that is difficult for someone who resists God to accept. Paul is simply saying this. What Paul writes is what God is saying, alright? Please understand that. It's not Paul's own idea. Huh? Paul is under inspiration, writing the inspired word of God. God. Paul is simply explaining this. Number one, those of you who say, well, if God does not weigh in my heart, it's not fair. Then Paul simply says, and I'm going to hell, it's not fair. Paul is simply saying, he is God. You are men. Can the lump of clay question the potter? 
And he says, even in a house, some pots are made for your children to sit on to make their doo-doo. It's a pot of dishonor. Some are made for very beautiful vases. Say, even men, you do that. So he says, we can't question God. Number one. Then number two, he says this. Now, what if God, if God's plan is all hate me, all going to hell, I choose to save some, and in saving these people, they will say, what a loving and glorious God this is, that he would save us. If God chose to do that to show forth his love and his glory and his power, we can't question him. Do you understand what the argument? He's saying this, you know. He said, no, 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 I still cannot understand. He's saying this. You, try to imagine this. There is a bunch of cockroach in your house. It's summer, right? There's a bunch of cockroach in your house. And then you chase them out of your house. And then they're crossing the road. A whole bunch of cockroaches. You ch- they're walking across the road. Then your neighbor drove out of the driveway. Then you say, oh no. He's going to run over the cockroaches. Then you run out and you jump over the cockroaches. And then the car rolls over you and you die to save the cockroaches. What would the cockroaches say if they could speak? (laughs) Wow, what a man. (laughs) The reality of the gospel is that we are worms in God's sight. We are filthy. We are the infinite God compared to us. We can't even imagine the gap. And God came, stood between us and judgment to save us. God said, actually, I don't need to do this. Did you need to run out and and jump over the cockroaches? You didn't need to. God don't need to. All of us are filthy and all of us are sinful, all of us are his enemy, all of us going to hell. And God said, what if God chose to come and save some? That through that, his love and his glory is shown. If that is God, what God chose to do, oh man, we can't question him. Understand that? Now, this is very humbling. The doctrine of God's decree is very humbling that we can't question God. But once you know this is the infinitely holy and just and loving God, you do not question Him. You just simply say, God, I still cannot understand, but this I know. God, I was that cockroach and you saved me. This I know. I cannot explain or understand the rest, but I thank you for saving me. Paul is simply saying that. He's simply saying that to the people. And anyway, he told the Jews after that, anyway, God offered the salvation to you. Why don't you believe? Then they walk away, no, we don't want. You see, Paul said, I've proven my point. (laughs) That no matter what God does, you still won't believe him. You still reject Christ. Understand that? Okay, so that is God's sovereignty, God's love. Paul said, when they walked away and, and was angry and said, no, we can't accept it, Paul simply said, I've proven my point to you that you will never accept God, no matter what he does. And therefore, for those of us who are saved, we must be very grateful, thankful that this is God. All right? Rather than question I actually hear Christians questioning this all the time. Why didn't God save this person? Why don't, why don't, why don't, why don't? I say, read the Bible. The Bible tells us, simply thank God that he has saved you. And then you go preach the gospel to others not question God. 
Okay, so now next, point number six. Very quickly, six, seven, eight, and then we're done. All right, point six and seven is about how. Now, this is the important part. All right, so please pay attention. Point number six is about how God makes the election effective in your life. Okay, so point number six, let's read together. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. All right, underline the word means. Now, God has elected you before the foundation of the world, right? Now, it is no use, you know. God sits there and says, Okay, I want to save um, jo Jocelyn is not here. I want to save uh, Colin. I want to save Colin. I elected Colin. All right, let's move. Colin won't get saved. He's just elected, that's all. The means have to come in place. Do you understand? Now the question is, chose already, but how, how to get saved? He's still a sinner, still going to hell. So God must create the means. What was the means? Now, means how you get saved. Verse, uh, look at point number six. Let's read together. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ. So here. Then God said, alright, now, these people are sinners. Someone need to redeem them. Redeem. Uh, redeem means exchange, you know. You redemption coupon, right? Means exchange. Someone need to come and exchange his life on behalf of these people, Christ. So God says, I elected. The next thing I need to do, my son, Jesus Christ, you need to go redeem them. This is the means, alright? The next thing you read. Um, redeem by Christ, let's read together. Are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit in due season. Ah, that's the next thing. They say, alright, son, you go and redeem them. Alright, Christ said, I'll come and die for them. What's the next step? Alright, Christ come and die for you. Colin is elected, Christ came to die for him. But it's still no use. Because remember, will Colin accept Christ? No. All men reject Christ. Every single human being. You too. You will reject Christ. God elected you. God sent Jesus Christ to die for you. But you still won't choose God, right? Right or not? Because that is men. So what did God need to do next? What is the means? Called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit in due season. What does it mean? means at one point, God say, I, send Je I elect Colin. I send Jesus for him. Now I need to do the next thing. I need to send the Holy Spirit. To do what? To call him. Colin. Colin. To call him. But this call is the effectual call. In due season. Means at a certain point of time. Colin, when, which year do you get saved? 2009. 2009, up to from when were you born? 2000 and? <laughs> 19 what? 1988. 1988, Colin was born. From 1988 to, no, I go way the time. Now you understand election. Huh? Before God created the world, God said Colin Cheng, right? Colin Cheng is an, well, a predestined to save Colin Cheng. Then God said, I sent Jesus Christ to die for Colin Cheng. And then also, um, yeah, then after that, he said, Ah, then I will let him be born in 1988. And then in 2009, in due season, in 2009, I will send the Holy Spirit to Colin. Where were you? In Singapore? In, in Sydney. I will send the Holy Spirit in Sydney in due season, and he will call Colin. He will work in Colin's heart, in other words. 
Alright, this is the means. And then what happened next? You look next. Then are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power. Ah, the next step. Then after he called, now this is an irresistible call. Colin will respond. Because he's an elect, Colin will respond. Now after that, God will justify, adopt, and sanctify. Three things. Justify means what? Colin, you responded. Colin, I stamp justification on you. Means Colin, your sins are washed away. You are just. You are ready for heaven. Understand? It's a legal term. I always say justification is a legal term. Means the courts declare you as if without sin. You walk out, the police catch you again. You say, I'm justified. Here is my document. I'm free to go. Alright? So after the Spirit calls you, then God justifies you. How can God justify you, Colin? Can God justify you unless someone has paid the crime for you? Right? He can only do that because Christ paid the crime for you. Right? So Christ must come first. Then Christ paid the crime for you. Then God said, you, can, you are justified. Okay, then next, adopted. Then you become his child. Then sanctified and kept by his power. Then after that, God say, I will, I will clean up um, Colin. And now, Colin, from now till you go to heaven, God will continue to work in your life to sanctify you. And you must continue to live a holy life to follow after God. That's the sanctification process. Understand that? Alright, then, kept by his power, you will never fall. That's why predestination kept by his power means you will never fall you will never leave the faith kept by his power means you will never lose your salvation understand the means that is the means after god elected god have to do all these things and while you're on earth god to keep working preserving you if you are truly safe you will never lose your salvation because it tells you here and the bible verses are there i can't go through it all but you go back and read them Okay. What happened to those who say, oh, they come to our church, you know, they were very active. But now they are outside in the world, they reject Christ, they say God is false. Have you seen people like that? Yeah. You know, every other year, you see people like that. Came in, whoa, fantastic Christian, then next thing you know, God doesn't exist. It's false. You know, and all those start attacking God. How can that? How can it be? Did they lose their salvation? Is election not effective? Oh no, God elected, but this guy was stronger than God. He managed to overcome God and reject God. Is that what happened? No. Actually, why does it happen? Julia? They were not saved in the very first place. Alright? They were never saved in the first place. If you are truly saved, if you fall in this category of election, and you've received Christ, you will never fall because God promised that. First Philippians chapter 1, promise. And if you did not behave like that, it simply means in the first place, this person was not saved. He was excited about Christianity, he, he put on the form and everything, but he was not a true believer. Understand that? All right? Because people always ask, how come? Election is sure. God's decree is what? unchangeable we said that number one right if god chose to save you it's unchangeable the number never decreased oh no um uh, fiona doesn't want anymore oh drop by one no the number is fixed the number can only be fixed if god preserves right okay so that is election 
very very wonderful doctrine um, so that is how so now I ask you today is that what happened in your life you study about election then you worry maybe I'm not in elect how do we know whether an elect or not is it imprinted on your forehead no no one knows but it's simply this you know the means you know that only Jesus Christ can save you you know that only he can justify you if the spirit is calling you respond you respond that's all all right number seven very quickly number seven let's read together the rest of mankind God was pleased according to his unsearchable counsel of his own will whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor wrath for their sin to the praise and glorious of his glorious justice very quickly this is why I explained just now God passed by this is not double predestination I ask you a question there what is double predestination there is the misconception that God predestinate God predestinated um, uh, Julia to be saved then God predestinated Raymond not to be saved it doesn't work like that God never predestinated anyone to hell all men are heading to hell God predestinated to save some the rest he passed by understand that passed by double predestination if if double predestination means God purposely chose some to go to heaven and then purposely chose some to go to heaven to hell that kind of double predestination is wrong the Bible doesn't say that the Bible always say God bypassed that's it God actively chose to save God did not actively choose a group to go to hell by default we are going to hell all right understand that that is predestination in the Bible um, now who who we do not know who but all we know is God bypasses some and God saves some that's it to the praise of his glory you ask God when you're in heaven I think you'll be too busy thanking him point number eight all right the last thing now so before we read this I want to, exp I want to say one thing first does this doctrine sound very difficult to accept how do we look at this doctrine of predestination what's the point of studying this chapter question number eight addresses that number eight let's read together the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their election now stop there what does it mean it's saying this the Bible tells us about election and the means to be saved for a purpose the purpose is so that you will be diligent to ensure that means occur in your life understand that and once you are sure it is the best thing that can happen in your life what he's saying is this now God tells you about election for one purpose God tells you election is for the purpose of assuring you understand that so there's assurance 
For the believer, it's very good, you know, election, the doctrine, it assures you because you know it's sure. Number one. Number two, God tells you about election so that you would thank Him. All right, that is the second part. And um, to afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God. And in humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. The doctrine of election brings abundant consolation to you. Doesn't it? You're very sure. Now, once you understand election, I ask you this. If you lose your job tomorrow, if someone tells you you have cancer tonight and you're going to die in three days' time, if you, if you go home and you're... I'm not cursing you. If you go home and your whole house burnt down or your whole business collapsed and you're bankrupt, but you just think of election, that God has saved you, that you're not going to hell, your soul is safe, do you know that you will bring such a consolation? It does not matter. Life is temporary on earth. I have a sure place in heaven. The doctrine of election brings great assurance and brings great thanksgiving to God. God, although all these things happen to me, but really it doesn't matter. I'm just so happy that I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. I'm spared of eternal judgment because of your love. Nothing matters. This is the doctrine of election. This is what it's supposed to do to you and I. And then we look back and say, I don't deserve all this, but God, the infinite God, came to save me. How I must now return my life to Him freely, gladly. Why do I hold it back? That is the reason for studying election and God's decree. Understand that? It is not to fill our heads with knowledge. That's all. So please, I hope that this not only grounds you theologically, your understanding of election, your understanding of decrees, your understanding of God, the most important, He's high and holy, and we don't have to question Him, trust Him 100%, your theology of that grounded, and then what it does to your heart is nothing else matters now. Even if I lose everything, I'm safe. I'm an elect. If you wonder if you're an elect, you only have one very simple thing to do tonight, to ask God, God, I'm afraid I'm not an elect. Please save me. He will hear that prayer. You can be sure, very sure. Let us pray.